Good afternoon and a very warm welcome to the Oxford Martin School seminar series uh, Blurred Lines, the interface between man and machine. Uh, I'm absolutely delighted today to have uh, Dr. Anders Sandberg here uh, on artificial intelligence examining the interface between brain and machine. Uh, Anders is a James Martin Fellow. He's a very active member of the Oxford Martin Program on the impacts of future technology and also of our Future of Humanity Institute. Uh, doing wide-ranging work. He ran a workshop uh, earlier this week on modeling uh, risk uh, together with um, Amlin and others, which was a great success. And his research focuses on that as well as on the social and ethical issues associated with human enhancement and artificial uh, intelligence. So very wide-ranging uh, interests from the near term uh, to the very long term, uh, actually. Uh, he has a background in computer science, in neuroscience, in medical engineering, a PhD in computational neuroscience from Stockholm, uh, and uh, also been involved in many, many other scientific and other activities. So it's an absolute delight to have him here. This is being filmed and webcast, uh, so um, when we do come to the Q&A, which Carol Scott will chair, uh, if you don't want to be... Uh, webcast, then just don't say anything. Uh, but otherwise, uh, it, your voice will travel. So, Anders, delighted to have you, and thanks for. Thank you, Ian. Ah, it's a delight to be here again. I've actually spent this entire week coming and going to this building, so um, I'm starting to feel really at home here. And um, some might wonder w wait a minute, isn't the Future Humanity Institute part of the film? Oh, it isn't uh, on. Interesting. I, I think it was on. It is on. It is on. Cool. Okay. Man and machine and their interfaces, which are kind of complicated as this simple thing of just getting a microphone to work demonstrates. And of course, we are trying to shape our machines to fit uh, us, but in the same uh, mode, of course, our machines change uh, us. Uh, even if uh, something as simple as shoes change the shape of our feet, and hence change the affordances of our ability to move around the world. Allow us to go where uh, nobody would want to venture barefoot, but also making us want to go less barefoot, of course, because we get unused to it. Now, getting back to wh what the heck is somebody from computer science doing in the philosophy department? Uh, so, the Future of Humanity Institute is primarily about improving the future of humanity in the broadest, longest, biggest possible sense. Uh, we have a remit in the Oxford Martin School to think about the really big picture, long-range questions for the future, trying to focus on the things that would make a real huge difference in value. And then, of course, think about how can we think about these strange things. Because if there is one thing we know from the past is that predictions rarely work, and people are not quite as rational as we would hope to be, and decision-making uh, could make do with a lot of improvement. How would you actually do something useful that way? And this is where it's useful to be interdisciplinary. Philosophers, unlike us in the natural sciences, are completely unafraid to wade in where there is actually no data yet, and no theory. That's more, more interesting. Because if there is no data, that's a kind of evidence of a different kind. That can actually be useful. And it's surprising how much you can actually bring out, even in these uncertain fields, by a bit of sharp thinking. A particular area we're really interested in is under-researched topics. 
Because it turns out that even a small investment of effort into something very few people care about to research can quite often rapidly expand how much we actually know about it. And this is very useful in order to find out whether these under-researched topics actually are under-researched for a good reason, namely that they're unimportant, or whether we're just under-researched because we look strange or awkward, and actually they might be so important that we ought to be putting a lot more serious effort into it. So we're kind of scouting out the future and trying to see what should we be worried about. And this talk is going to be a bit about what part of the interface between smarter machines and humans might cause friction, might be something worth investigating further. So this is the rough outline of the talk, and I should start, of course, by immediately uh, apologizing, because I have plenty of time to prepare this talk with ideas, but not enough time to delete slides. So I'm going to be jumping past some sections very, very quickly, and hopefully we can get back to them in the question and answering session. Um, I, it's not going to be a proper philosophy talk, and it's not going to be a, a computer science talk either, and probably not a standard uh, future studies talk. It's going to be somewhere in between, and hopefully that is going to be slightly helpful to illuminate what might be going on here. So, let's get started. Artificial intelligence and robotics have a very, very long tradition. Uh, Aristotle was, of course, quoting uh, old documents uh, claiming that the gods of Olympus had these uh, walking and talking machines. And he was using this in an argument, uh, where, or rather using it to ignore some opposition to his argument about why there was slaves in his ideal utopia, because he pointed out that, yeah, obviously, if, if our tools could do all the work, we wouldn't need slaves. However, equally obviously, uh, we don't have uh, tools we can talk to, so hence slaves are needed. And then he went on to discuss the virtues the slaves should have. Uh, but the dream, of course, of getting machines to do something for you easily, without effort, is age-old. Because at the core of technology, I think it is the aim at making the world magical. We want to save the world. We want to will something, and then it happens. Ideal technology works just like that. When we really, really enjoy a user interface, it's typically because it's getting so close to magic that we hardly even notice it. Uh, of course, unfortunately, most technology is very far from magical. It's far too clunky, it's far too obvious, and it has an interface that we tend to care about because it bothers us all the time. Of course, philosophy also can happen to almost anybody. So Alan Turing, uh, the greatest computer scientist uh, so far, is also actually a fairly well-cited philosopher, at least according to the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, and they ought to know. After all, that's uh, how you always start any philosophical paper. You, you just go to the Stanford Encyclopedia, read up, and try to not exactly plagiarize the best ideas in that entry, but uh, at least copy it. But in this case, uh, I think they're completely right. His paper in uh, 1950, where he was arguing that it might be reasonable one day to talk about thinking machines, has been extremely well-cited, and it has stimulated an enormous amount of investigation, research, and indeed controversy. Uh, it's a very interesting example where somebody from outside philosophy actually does an actual contribution to philosophy. There was certainly a philosopher of mind before, but he brought in the possibility that we might be creating other minds, or at least things that are similar enough to minds that they matter to philosophers of mind. And that led to a very fruitful discussion that has obviously been going on until this day. 
of course, there are other perspectives. And, uh, after all, you can be pragmatic and not care too much about whether there are minds in the machines, but rather thinking about, uh, well, can we do the job? Can we make the world magical enough? So Oscar Wilde was uh, arguing, as best that he was, uh, that um, of course uh, in, in, uh, there is a lot of drudgery in the world and it would be so good if we could get rid of it so we could all spend time on doing nice things. And this is of course a, a sentiment that is also interesting from a philosophical standpoint. What's the point of work? If we could actually get our devices to do our, wor or our work for us, would that actually be a good idea? Generally, of course, as I said, there is a lot of overlap between artificial intelligence and ph philosophy. And indeed, there is a lot of overlap with a lot of other domains. One of the nice things about a young interdisciplinary discipline is that it can steal so much from everywhere. And it's been stealing great ideas, but also stimulated a lot of important ideas. Uh, for example, Herbert Simon, who's mainly well known as an economist, he was also quite uh, an important uh, early artificial intelligence researcher and his work on bounded rationality, how to make reasoning given limited constraints of time and memory is very relevant both for economics and uh, in uh, programming. And there have been a lot of interesting cross-fertilization going on here. Uh, I'm just going to be using a few very vague and loose definitions. Uh, so generally people talk about artificial intelligence Hand in a hand wave away, assuming that everybody understands what it relates to. I would like to point out the difference between the narrow definition of artificial intelligence, which is solving a particular kind of problems in a good way, and the general intelligence approach, where you try to find, have a system that if you put a new problem, problem to it, it can solve it, even though it has never encountered problems of that kind before. Some critics of this term, of course, point out that, yeah, uh, you, you turn AI into real crack pottery by adding that little g. Others would say, no, 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 this is the original vision. Alan Turing and others, they were really thinking about getting general intelligence out of computation. While uh, later on, since it turned out to be so much easier doing narrow stuff, a lot of the practical research, of course, went into the, uh, that uh, area which uh, has a much easier time uh, making money, getting funds and uh, sometimes uh, uh, succeeding. So there has always been a tension in this field between these two extremes, the kind of pragmatic vision of let's make a tool for this purpose that does something smart versus let's make smartness itself. And of course, people have been very different in their views on how easy it is. So back in 1956, John McCarthy, in his write-up of why they should get a grant for making a little uh, summer school, uh, founding this new field of artificial intelligence, pointed out that we can probably make a great deal of progress over summer. And uh, of course, in 65, uh, Herbert Simon was fairly confident that uh, we will probably be able to replace any human uh, task with machines and at least within a generation or so. Uh, then, of course, back in 65, Hubert Rafus, one of the classic gadflies of the whole artificial intelligence project, uh, also uh, considered that, well, chess performance that you claim is so good uh, evidence that uh, a machine can actually think. Uh, even Alan Turing actually seemed to have believed that that was a pretty good measure of real intelligence. Uh, Dreyfus pointed out that chess performance is leveling off. Yeah, I don't think your project is going to get anywhere. He was kind of wrong about that, although he's kept up in his uh, sometimes very interesting critique uh, since then, and there is some real content in them. Marvin Minsky got uh, somewhat pessimistic somewhere in the 80s too, actually, and uh, at least acknowledged that this is 
the harder, probably one of the hardest science problems ever undertaken. And of course, there have been periods when people have been looking very carefully in the dictionary to find anything but artificial intelligence to call the project, because otherwise the venture capital will not be forthcoming. So there has been plenty of an uh, extreme hype, and then very deep disappointment, and then interesting attempts of getting out of it. Quite often by people borrowing even better, more different ideas from other disciplines. And generally, I think the history of AI so far has given us a very interesting piece of information, which I think is actually a kind of profound statement about uh, a lot of things in the world. It's actually, as Daniel uh, and Stephen Pinker pointed out, this is actually a pretty deep philosophical realization. Making a chess playing machine or a machine that solves equations is not as hard as making one that can grasp a pen, which is strange. Wouldn't grasping a pen, something uh, most children do quite often when you don't want them to do it, be much, hard, uh, much, much easier than understanding something that takes you years at a university to learn? But it turns out that many of the formal symbolic things that uh, especially us in academia tend to think is the really interesting part, they, once you formalize them in the right way, tend to be fairly easy to do. Meanwhile, all this everyday uh, stuff that is going on uh, typically before breakfast, that turns out to be exceedingly hard uh, to uh, automate. Just imagine uh, to make a robot that would be able to get out of bed. Surrounded by soft uh, surfaces that move around, some of which enclose it and might constrict its movement in a very non-linear fashion. That's quite tough. So this has been dogging uh, the field for a long time. At the same time, I think the core ideas are kind of interesting on their own. The big assumption is, of course, this can be done, either the narrow and broad case. There have been a lot of early work on planning and reasoning and laying out formal systems for doing that, which have been synergizing quite nicely with psychology and philosophical ideas about what is rationality. How do we do rational planning? Another interesting crossover was uh, from psychology, where people were studying um, operant conditioning and other things in animal and animal learning but then got formalized into reinforcement learning, which turned out to be a really useful way of doing machine learning, where you have rewards when the machine succeeds in something, and punishment where it doesn't uh, succeed. They don't necessarily have to correspond to pleasure or pain or anything. But that reinforcement signal allowed the machine to update its behavior in a quite often surprising way. And it turns out that some of the algorithms developed in our AI actually turn out to correspond fairly well with what seems to be happening in the dopaminergic forebrain bundle that uh, controls a lot of our behavior. Uh, other interesting discoveries were the negative ones, like natural language processing is really hard, computer vision is surprisingly hard, but also discovered that yeah, you can get a lot out of uh, statistical learning, and borrowing from biology is surprisingly effective in many cases including, of course, the practical business case that sometimes you don't need full intelligence to do something that actually works well. A Roomba is not a butler robot, but it still sells pretty well, and apparently it keeps floors pretty clean. So, what is the state of art? Well, this is a cartoon from Ray Kurzweil's The Singularity near, is Near from 2005. So, this is a very editorial cartoon-like picture. Mankind is sitting there and writing down what uh, only humans can do. Unfortunately, some of it, of course, turns out that, yeah, actually, machines can also recognize faces. And, yeah, of course, uh, well, there was that chess-playing computer that beat humans at it. But at least only a human can review a movie, and only people have common sense, and only humans can drive cars. Which, of course, by now have fallen off, because we 
kind of have autonomous cars too. So the problem is, of course, keeping up with this. Uh, generally, if you look at the performance, in some domains, it's you know, optimal. It's essentially impossible to go beyond, uh, simply because it's mathematically perfect. It's impossible to beat a properly co programmed computer on tic-tac-toe. At most, you can get a draw. And this is also true on things like Rubik's Cube, uh, where now the matter is mostly mechanical. How quickly can you have a robot twist the cube? And it's superhuman in a lot of uh, domains, which we would say are pretty tough. Sometimes we're not that impressed. Scrabble, well, we can imagine running a really big dictionary and doing some probabilistic lookup on where it should put the tiles. It's slightly less obvious that you can play in a superhuman backgammon game. Uh, it turns out that for character recognition, it's about the normal human level. In the case of playing Go, there have been some surprising increases. After chess was lost to the computers, a lot of people said, yeah, but go, you will never be able to fix that, because that requires a different form of very fluid intelligence. Currently, current performance is kind of a really skilled amateur, but it's been getting up at a significant pace. Driving a car is kind of an interesting case, because it's subhuman in many domains of driving and superhuman in other domains. So since I based this on Wikipedia, and it was in two places, I put them in the average place. But the point is, most everyday tasks performed by humans are completely outside the bounds for our normal artificial intelligence. That, of, of course, I mentioned chess, but we, we have been dreaming about butler bots, but we got the little Roombas. And we tend to, of course, underestimate the power of that, uh, just like we don't notice that this is actually a picture of robots. Although these robots happen to be cranes and uh, they're, they're not looking very much with eyes, they're using radio and, um, transponders to detect where different containers are and move them around in a skillful way. And the real artificial intelligence to watch out for in this picture is of course completely invisible. That's the logistic systems under, underlying this, figuring out where each container should go in order to optimize transport, make supply chain resilient, or at least very, very fast. And those savings uh, from automated uh, logistics systems are apparently been rather enormous. The American Defense Advanced Research Project Agency claimed that their logistics software they developed uh, for the Gulf War had actually saved more money than had been spent on the entire organization throughout its lifetime up to that point. Whether this is true, I don't know, no, but um, it's kind of a telling thing, especially since you realize that that, by now, would be obsolete logistics software. And by now, Walmart and others have, of course, much more powerful um, examples. Similarly, we have a lot of AI that is perhaps visible and it's much more everyday, like Siri, which is doing some pretty advanced speech recognition. I never really got along with her, mainly because of my accent, but um, it seems to work pretty well for a lot of people. Uh, again, this is slightly surprising when you look at the history of how good speech recognition has been, because when you do benchmark studies like this one from the National Institute of um, uh, Standards, uh, generally, well, they're having a hard time getting down to that error range that is human-like. Typically, when you get anywhere close, we stop measuring it too, so you don't know what happens after that. So this graph is slightly pessimistic, but generally it seems to be extremely hard to interpret meeting speech and uh, phone conversation. So that would seem to hint that uh, they, they will never get something like Siri. But that just shows that it's very benchmarking something extremely incomplete in this domain, despite a lot of money and effort being thrown at it. 
Another interesting example is, of course, translation. Uh, as the joke uh, goes among computational linguists, well, every time you fire a linguist and, uh, by, and, and hire a statistician, your perf translation performance goes up by a few percent. And the trick Google and others used in, uh, in order to make effective translation systems was, of course, to use a lot of pre-translated human text and just do data mining on it. You might argue, but wait a minute, this is not real intelligence at all. This is just handling a lot of data, correlating sentences with each other, and then uh, delivering it in a very effective way to the user. But most people would, of course, say translating a text actually requires a form of understanding. So even you might say, this is actually not properly translated, there is no understanding here, which is probably true. If I could read Hindi, I would probably find some glaring grammatical and uh, um, uh, semantic mistakes in this text. But at the same time, a surprising amount of semantics and grammar is already embodied in the data, pre-prepared by humans. So in a sense, we're cheating the arti proper artificial intelligence problem simply by using a bit of intelligence left behind by all the humans in the data used by Google. Which is, of course, exactly why Google works so well. It's actually using a lot of the link structure we humans laboriously have created between things we find meaningful. And then the machine can figure out that, hmm, this link means that some humans find this link meaningful. It might not understand what the meaning is, or might not even understand what meaning is about, but it can use that. And, of course, this big data approach has done pretty well recently. I think most of you have heard about how uh, IBM's Watson managed to win uh, against uh, two human grandmasters on uh, playing Jeopardy. Again, it's an interesting case of very rapidly bringing up a lot of rather unstructured data as a response to a query. And, of course, IBM is betting very, very heavily right now that this could be used in a more profitable way than just winning uh, Jeopardy, for example, in answering medical questions. And you could imagine perhaps a government putting a lot of its data so a civil servant could ask a useful question, although that immediately shows some interesting problems because there are going to be some security aspects of this which are problematic. You can already use Google to search for information that is kind of potentially risky, not just in the sense that you could get a recipe for a bomb or a sequence of smallpox, but you can search for security cameras that are unsecured on the internet and get to look out from them. Or you can do a clever search and find the government data the government wouldn't like you to have as a private citizen. It's very hard to figure out before this happens that this is a security risk because typically it requires putting together widely dispersed pieces of information. And we humans are not terribly good at it. We might be creating software that do this in an automated manner. Again, the human might be required to do the really relevant query. But if you could automate some of these aspects, we're going to get, become much smarter at getting the information we want. And that's not always what we want socially. There's some information we might not want people to easily be able to access about us. Okay, I mentioned autonomous vehicles, of course, and I uh, of course need to have Oxford one over there. Again, it's an interesting case how big data and large amount of processing actually allow you to do something that just a few years before seemed to be rather out of reach of how to do it. So generally, the big data approach uh, means that you take a lot of information and you use relatively straightforward and simple statistical mechanisms to figure out things about it. This is one of my favorite examples, 80 million tiny pictures, where they downloaded essentially 80 million tiny pictures of different uh, nouns uh, from the internet. And then you show a picture and it finds the pictures that are closest. And given that it knows what those pictures are about, it can make a pretty decent guess what it's seeing. 
It can figure out things like coloring, that bathroom pictures are typically in white and blue, that pictures of bottled probably should be turned so they point upwards, and the horses are most of the time pointing leftwards. Interesting fact of Western art, actually. And so all this is inherent in the data. There is not that much intelligence here. Then, of course, if you added more intelligence, you might be able to infer more interesting stuff. And these inferences, as data grows on this enormous internet scale, they become more powerful. Uh, a few year, years back, Google famously managed to make a neural network detect cats spontaneously. Again, it's the same trick. You take enormous amounts of data and computing power and use an algorithm, which was actually fairly well known in the neural network and computer vision uh, circles many years before. I remember hearing about it when I started uh, with neural networks somewhere in the early 90s and felt, wow, that's awesome. Why haven't people worked more with it? Well, it turns out that uh, self-organizing deep neural networks, well, it takes a lot of computing power and convergence just seems to stop. And the reason it seemed to stop was probably we had too small data set because we couldn't get it into the computer and we couldn't run it long enough. There were some other interesting breakthroughs too, but basically it's the same method that back in the 80s uh, produced some nice papers but nothing more, and now you can actually use it to start figuring out interesting information on the net. Still, a cat detector is still rather crude, we can probably make something better, but it's interesting that you can uh, get systems that spontaneously create representations from uh, unordered data. From a philosophy standpoint, this is interesting because this is kind of an independent test of do our categories actually correspond to something in the real world or not? There have been this ongoing debate, of course, what categories actually and, uh, cut nature at its joints, as a very slightly brutal saying is. And this kind of deep learning is actually a way of exploring that by getting a kind of second opinion from a statistical uh, mechanism that's somewhat different from our own brains. Uh, just to conclude uh, for reinforcement learning, another really cool example, at least for older people like me, is that recently a, a reinforcement learning agent learned to play old Atari games. Not terribly well, mind you, but it was only seeing the video screen. It was only seeing pixels changing and getting a score. And then it wiggled its virtual joystick in order to try to get high score. And occasionally it did something good, and it learned because of the score it went up. And over a span, in this case, uh, of about 30 hours, it learned to play a mm, mediocre uh, game of Breakout. The interesting thing is, however, that 30 hours, that's a mostly a matter of computing power. Uh, given that we can uh, be fairly certain we're going to get at least 100,000 times more computing power, that would suggest that in kind of 30 years' time, we would be able to do this in one second, assuming no algorithmic improvements. And the tricky part here is, of course, that revolutions have a nasty tendency to creep up on you. So when Casper uh, lost to uh, Deep Blue, it was a bit of a surprise to many people. Uh, to observers of computer chess, it was less of a surprise. But the interesting thing is, if you were trying to predict it from the scores the uh, programs and humans were getting, it would not have been entirely obvious. So the blue dots to the left here, uh, they correspond to the machine, uh, learn, uh, machine chess programs running on PCs or other small computers. And uh, the score, that's the ELO score. The ELO system in chess is an interesting one, which is kind of intended to measure what's the likelihood of two players where uh, one player will win against the other. If you compare the scores, there is a formula that allows you to calculate this probability. And it seems to be working roughly right. So that allows you to do the diagram of left, uh, to the right. Uh, what's the probability that a club player, that's the blue one, uh, a grandmaster, that's the green one, or Gary Kasparov, the red one, 
would, uh, would win against the best computer program in time. And the interesting thing is this linear increase in score of the computer programs, and most of us wouldn't notice it if we're really stupid. And, uh, gradually, of course, means that within a decade, Grandmaster went from being totally certain they could win over to being fairly certain that they would lose. Now, this is a gradual increase in performance. What, what caused it? Well, some elements are in a pure Moore's law. A lot of it is extra computing power being able to go deeper into it. A lot of it was algorithmic improvements. And it's an interesting problem, actually, how much of improvements in performance depend on uh, uh, whether our software is just running faster or whether it's being more clever. So there is an excellent re review by Katja Grace um, about algorithmic progress in different domains, where she was reviewing everything from uh, solving SAT problems over uh, to physics, over to chess and Go. And her general view was that uh, most of these areas have had fairly fast improvement, and it could be up to half or equal to their improvement in hardware speed. The interesting thing is that, of course, algorithmic improvements are about ideas. They don't happen that gradually. Somebody has a clever idea and tries it out, and then you more or less instantly move up a fair bit. So the lower diagram there, which uh, tries to show some of the performance on certain uh, numerical tasks, I think in hydrodynamics, uh, kind of shows that actually each of these jumps might correspond to five or ten years of Moore's law. So if you come up with a really good optimization of your code, of course, you can move much faster ahead. In the previous uh, in the case, in the chess computers, some of you might have wondered about the date, because Kasparov actually uh, lost Deep uh, Blue before the crossing point. But that was, of course, because IBM could afford to throw a supercomputer into the game and add some extra uh, power to the punch. And, and these uh, curves are otherwise for personal computers. So if uh, Katja is right about this, and I have a feeling uh, it fits in a lot of domains, we should expect surprises, because we can't predict when somebody's coming up with a better algorithm. It's very hard to prove that there is no better algorithm in many of the bigger and messier domains. Uh, so that leaves us with a bit of uncertainty about the future. So near-term impacts here. So here is a report uh, that was written by Carl uh, Benedict Frey and Michael Osborne, and, uh, who I'm very happy to uh, share office with. Uh, at least Carl, about what are the effects on employment. Because um, while Oscar Wilde was looking forward to a world where maybe we wouldn't need to work, most other people throughout the 20th century thinking about employment machines have been worried about unemployment. So what Carl and Michael did was make a model of, different, of what skills are likely to be automated and what skills do different professions require. So there's a nice database of American occupations, and then you can see how much we depend on skills, and then you can make a probabilistic assessment of it. So generally, it seems that about 45 or 47% of uh, occupations are actually in the kind of high uh, probability area. That means in the foreseeable future, if we solve some problems in AI, um, we're pretty likely to actually to be able to replace a lot of those jobs with automation of some kind. So the, the, the most likely job to be replaced is telemarketer. And I think we're all going to be very happy that they disappear, except that they're already being replaced by software, which is even more implacable in bothering you when you're eating. Uh, one of the le uh, least uh, likely to be replaced jobs is a registered nurse. There, you need manual dexterity, you need social skills, you need a bit of strategic intelligence, and so on. 
a lot of the things that are rather tough. So what seems to be happening is that in the past, the very simple uh, routine jobs um, that were manual routine jobs could be replaced in factories by automation that didn't even need to be particularly smart. Now we're getting to the intellectual routine jobs because quite a lot of those seem to be amenable to be dealt with by using either big data approaches or databases or just uh, online optimizations. So that's why we see a lot of sales and related stuff uh, in the danger zone. Meanwhile, if you're a gardener, you're probably sitting pretty well here because more of the paradox uh, hints that it's kind of tough to make a good gardener bot. It would seem, of course, that if you're washing dishes in a restaurant, you would be pretty safe. That's a manual task. It might be boring, but it's a very manual task and most dishes are kind of complicated. But of course, it's possible to refactor it and replace you with a, a, dish, a dishing machine. If you can completely change the task, of course, you can automate it. Another interesting uh, occupation that's pretty high on uh, Carl's list is underwriter. Now, since uh, I'm doing a bit of research with the insurance people, that uh, kind of hit me. Wait a minute, the underwriters, aren't, uh, are they that unsafe? And then I started thinking about it, hmm, yeah, there seems to be a real chance actually replacing with a simple statistical model. However, my project is about the risks of just using models. One of the real skills of underwriters is, of course, knowing when the model is wrong. That's what actually uh, earns their keep. Uh, if an underwriter just listens to their model, they're a danger to uh, their company. Uh, so the underwriters who actually know their stuff, they're very safe. Uh, it's the companies who just uh, uh, would rely on automation. They are in the kind of in the risky situation here. So many of these jobs are not going to disappear, of course. They're just going to be changing, probably moving up to the meta level where an underwriter would be running a lot of little artificial intelligent agents and making sure they stayed on track. Um, and maybe they're going to be meta-telemarketers uh, controlling hordes of uh, software and calling us uh, during dinner and when we want to sleep and uh, coordinating their attacks on our wallets. But it's going to be a very different job from the uh, previous job as a telemarketer. And a lot of them might need reskilling. So generally, there is this interesting question, when should actually machines do a job uh, that a human can do? And I think the obvious thing is there are some bad jobs that we definitely want to leave, uh, leave to the machines. From a moral standpoint, a dangerous and dirty uh, or disgusting job, yeah, unless somebody really wants to do it uh, with full informed consent uh, and so on, uh, they should probably actually have it replaced. But on the other hand, we need jobs from a psychological standpoint in the sense that we need identities. We, we need to be doing something important with our lives. Some people actually have important stuff to do that are not job-like, but many of us find important things to do in a job. This is, of course, an easy sell at a university like this, because most of us actually have stuff we believe are really important to do, and at least it's inspiring for us. And we would probably, even if a machine could do our job, want to do something similar anyway. After all, I, I'm going to beat that computer at making an even better philosophy paper. It, the problem might be, of course, having to work. Oscar Wilde would be arguing that's the real problem. Others would immediately respond, that's part of the human condition. We're kind of finite, resource-limited organisms. Of course, uh, we we're going to have to do stave off entropy one way or another. However, we, it might be that we could do that by creating devices that stave off entropy for us. Uh, so that would, if that were to happen, it would be a rather drastic shift in the human condition. And pretty obviously, a rather drastic shift in our economy and society and everything else, which might be a tad turbulent. 
So one very relevant question is to figure out how quickly these changes could happen. That's why the previous uh, uh, curves about that uh, some of these revolutions can creep up on you and uh, should actually not be a bit of cause of concern. There are still people who get into the uh, job as a cab driver today, but within 10 to 20 years, of course, the automated cars are most likely going to replace most cab drivers. The ones that are going to be left are, of course, going to be private chauffeurs because they have a symbolic role. I'm important enough to have a human drive me around. There are certain uh, symbolic jobs that are really safe. I usually joke that uh, priests, prostitutes and politicians are safe. And I think uh, we're going to find a surprising number of other otherwise unimportant or uh, perhaps uh, jobs we even look down on that actually have a symbolic angle that is hard to automate. But we're also going to get a bit of uh, surprises when middle management suddenly finds itself being replaced with rather short pieces of code. And they're, of course, not going to take that lying down. They're going to call their, their, their members of parliament and going to be, uh, make a big fuss about it. So we should expect some interesting turbulence there. Of course, if we get even closer to um, human intelligence, then things get even more drastic. So this is uh, Robin Hanson, uh, and I'm kind of stealing a slide in a recursive way in, uh, by taking a photo of him. Uh, he was giving a talk at our uh, Winter Intelligence Conference last year uh, about the economics of uh, artificial intelligence. And from a simple economic standpoint, of course, if you have something that could do all the things humans do, but you could buy more of it if you need it. That's really good news. You have a much better elasticity in the supply of uh, labor. And then you can plug it into more normal economic models, and generally what comes out is awesome or horrifying, depending on your point of view. Because uh, normally, of course, labor supply cannot increase that rapidly, because it takes a long while to make uh, a human, and it's very expensive. However, you can copy robots. Even if a robot can't do exactly everything uh, a human can do, if it can do an important skill, you can make an arbitrary number of copies, and as long as it's cheaper than a human doing it, you can get a lot of it. And generally, this seems to be an important and generic finding that uh, anything that can allow you to copy human capital, either by putting it into a machine or making a machine ca that can function like a human, that's economic plutonium. Even schooling and education, which just improves human capital, is a big deal. It has an enormous effect on uh, social well-being and the GDP of country. If you got any way of copying human capital, even partially, that uh, seems to make most of the equations almost blow up. At the very least, you're going to see the stuff becoming connected to Moore's law, which again is going to mean a rather turbulent amount of economic growth. Perhaps good from wealth creation, but perhaps uh, going to cause a tad instability. A proper instability, there are other in, uh, in ways machines can misbehave in intriguing ways. So here is an interesting book that I've been considering buying, or rather trying to get somebody else to buy for me, because it's a little bit expensive. I mean, 999 uh, pounds, uh, yeah, but it has free delivery. <laughs> the interesting thing about this book is that it has not been written by a human, and it has probably not even been read by any human. Uh, this is generated by you know, a publisher, I put it in a bit of scare quotes, uh, that essentially takes uh, an open source text, typically Project Gutenberg or Wikipedia, and strings together around some theme, a virtual book. 
and uh, then puts up uh, an ad for it in the Amazon marketplace. And occasionally somebody is stupid enough to buy one of these books. At that point, of course, these Wikipedia articles get strung together, sent to a print-on-demand company and shipped over to the uh, customer. There is actually a book about me on one of these sites. <laughs> I haven't dared actually order it because it's a bit expensive, but I'm so curious because it's 95 pages long and I can't write 95 pages about myself. <laughs> so on one level, this is kind of cute. Yeah, we have machi uh, machines here pretending to be uh, human publishers. It, uh, he even got a name, it seems, here. Uh, Jesse Russell and, oh, there were two of them, and Ronald Cole. So these uh, fictional uh, people have been writing a book about machines pretending to be humans in order to test their intelligence, which is so beautifully recursive. Uh, the problem is, of course, it's spamming up the marketplace with a lot of books that actually are not good. And uh, also, some of them uh, are getting fake reviews. You might notice that this, this book is even more expensive, which is really fun given that its uh, the title is How to Survive Personal Bankruptcy. <laughs> um, so I don't know whether this book was actually written by a human or a machine. Uh, however, I'm pretty certain the reason for the extreme prices is that there are two trader bots on Amazon looking at each other's prices, and, try, and one of them is trying to bid a slightly higher price. Uh, and then uh, the other one is trying to keep a slightly lower one, but the first one goes up uh, seven uh, pence, and then the other one uh, uh, takes that price and goes down two pence, and then they start escalating. And before you know it, you're going to have these amazingly expensive books. Again, this is a kind of mildly amusing behavior, except that this, of course, happens occasionally in the real stock market, causing crashes. So the flash crash uh, was probably a result of something very similar. Uh, even figuring out what went wrong in those uh, very, very rapid transactions over a span of a few minutes has turned out to be a very tough situation. In that case, automated safeguards, other pieces of software, eventually noticed that something was amiss and kind of uh, stepped on the brakes. But we see here that we get emergent misbehaviors, even though this code is not terribly smart. It's not trying to be intelligent about anything. It's just trying to follow relatively simple rules, and that's enough already. All right, and this leads to one observation, that the safety of our autonomous devices behaves in a very non-linear fashion as they get smarter. A very stupid device, like a knife or a pen, if they misbehave, that's because I'm misusing them. They don't have any behaviors of their own. But uh, the automated pen that tries to uh, put, uh, put out ink when it's needed, that might, of course, put out ink when it's not needed. The Microsoft paperclip that some of you might remember and dread was popping up just when you least wanted it, trying to help you. It was completely failing at uh, uh, providing help for most users. And this is, of course, a bit problematic when you start thinking about autonomous cars, for example. A normal car doesn't move when nobody's in it, as long as the brakes are locked. An autonomous car might decide, based on some observations and some internal rules, to start at some point and move to some other point, for some reason we might not know at all. At all. And we have even less ability to predict what it's going to do, because we're used to humans behaving in odd ways, but the human probability distribution of misbehavior is very different from the machine distribution of misbehavior. And as the systems get smarter, we get this paradoxical situation that we can become much safer, 
because they might actually be able to notice malfunctions, they might be able to uh, upgrade themselves, they might be able to actually realize, uh-oh, something is going wrong, I'm going to shut myself down. Or they might actually have extremely complicated misbehaviors. This is uh, one of the major things we're interested in. Uh, and of course, we might think about the ethics we want to put into them. I've been having great fun thinking about what, uh, what software would uh, Immanuel Kant uh, want his car to drive. Would he actually uh, accept uh, Volvo running utilitarian software, trying to maximize the number of uh, survivors in an accident? Or would he say, no, 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 that's the wrong ethics to use. There are certain rules you must put in here. And the problem is, of course, if we try to put in, let's say, the rules of Kantian ethics into a car, we run into real problems. I've seen, actually, an, a real software person uh, moan when he heard how it was supposed to work. That's not computable. It's not well-defined enough. So you're going to get an attempt at implementing it which is going to both have a risk of not being the right ethics, because maybe Kant was wrong about ethics, but also that even if he was right about ethics, our implementation might be limited by resource constraints, so we can't do a full in a Kantian ethics. And then maybe we do a few bugs too. And by the way, the software was written by a committee, and it's a lot of modules, some from third parties, and that's proprietary, and we have no clue what's actually going on inside. Uh, it actually turns out that figuring out when you can predict the behavior of this kind of system, especially when dealing with an outside world, uh, is very fun and practically impossible. Because even in the pure state, where you have one computer running just software on its own, of course you have uh, the halting problem and various forms of undecidability. You have Rice theorems showing that most properties you care about are impossible to decide. And of course you get with normal a bunch of chaos and uncertainty, as well as bugs. So we have a kind of principal-agent component uh, problem. No, sorry, a principal agent problem. I was thinking too much statistics here. So, uh, generally, the stupid systems, we, we haven't designed them in the right way, and we cannot explain to them, and they cannot understand us. The smarter system, generally, it's a kind of misunderstanding. One reason I'm not using Siri or anything like it is that we don't understand each other, or at least she doesn't understand me. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Um, the, the problem seems to be that programming quite often has been seen as, well, you design something, you create a structure. But putting in goals and values in a system, that's actually more a matter of communication. Mostly because human values and goals are rather messy and complicated things that are hard to put into code. So here is one simple thing that I actually think would help quite a lot in these uh, domains. This is one of the few things most ethicists would completely agree with. Uh, that humans matter. Why they matter? Well, let's not go there. But to a robot, we're moving furniture. The first uh, causality of robot violence back in the 70s, well, he was stepping too close uh, to an industrial robot. The robot just regarded him as uh, an object to move out of the way, and that wasn't very good for him. It might actually be a good idea to try to come up with an, uh, how to get the robots to have primitives to represent humans, especially because humans are objects that are not just movable furniture, but we're furniture that moves of our own accord according to slightly complicated internal rules, and you can even communicate with this particular kind of furniture and get some partial information what the furniture thinks it's doing. This can, of course, get awfully complicated, but there are quite a lot of interesting challenges, and the cool thing is, of course, some people are willing to pay a lot for it. 
Uh, a simpler problem than making an ethical robot would, for example, be making a law-abiding robot. And most of us who've been uh, thinking about it immediately realize, wait a minute, that, is that even possible? It's simpler than making a moral machine, uh, but even law-abiding is utterly, utterly uh, complex. But setting it up as a goal can probably be a pretty good research topic. Even getting partial uh, compliance, let's say, with traffic rules is pretty obviously of value to the people making autonomous cars. And I think it might actually tell us quite a lot of useful things, not just about safer machines, but also about the nature of minds and about laws. Maybe we can get the lawyers in here. And I heard that they have money, so there might be some grants there. So, what are the upcoming challenges? Well, I think that living with artificial int uh, intelligence is going to be interesting because we're essentially creating a world that has a kind of techno-animistic spirit over it. Very little spirits in our devices. They have their own uh, autonomous uh, approaches. After all, I don't fully trust my computer because I know it constantly phones home to Redmond and tries, tries to do Microsoft bidding, as well as a long list of other software providers, as well as probably the malware and the NSA spyware and whatever else is living inside it. It's not entirely working on my behalf. I would like a machine that was loyal to me. It might not matter too much about my laptop, but it might certainly matter uh, about so my pacemaker. I really want my pacemaker to actually be integrated with me and just answerable to me. But how do we create trust and then uh, do validation and safety of complex systems? Well, because the number of interactions we can have is far larger than we could ever run through. Developing proper relationships with machines is another fun psychological thing that I don't have the time to get into. And of course, a lot of machines also have a kind of sonar comfort. An engineer would, of course, say, yeah, I have this specification. It's supposed to work in these parameters. And then, of course, most objects we actually use in the real world always get moved out outside the temperature range or in uh, the country or in uh, the accelerations or anything else they're supposed to be. That's how we actually use them, and that's how we reuse a lot of our technology. Now, if they are autonomous, they're going to be misbehaving in a lot of interesting ways, and we might want to make sure that we kind of fail gracefully when we're misbehaving. It's also interesting that the world is actually rather human-shaped these days. We humans kind of dominate the planet. Uh, every human-created environment is shaped very much by the assumptions of humans moving around, which actually means that designing robots to handle this particular kind of environment is an important uh, challenge. I mentioned, of course, some of the occupational issues. And uh, I think that's a really important thing, including making humans better able to move between different jobs, better able to acquire human capital to new skills. And getting to learn these opaque autonomous systems is going to be tricky. The morality issue of autonomous systems is even deeper. Um, so I'm just going to briefly run through uh, essentially 50 slides or something like that, uh, because basically, uh, getting to the end point here. All the other stuff is something we can do another day. Uh, but basically, uh, I think uh, the real challenge is, of course, when we get to really smart systems, very smart systems that can program or redesign themselves, they are actually potentially very dangerous. They are at the extreme end of that uncertainty curve. I.J. Good understood this in his uh, seminal paper uh, where he defined this as an intelligence explosion. If you get a system that can actually improve on itself, then it would be, in the potential become very, very powerful. 
Now, he also realized, there is a sentence that's typically in, uh, often lost, and I, I lost it in this quote, and that is, of course, after that, thus the first ultra-intelligence machines, the last invention man need ever make, followed by assuming it's pliant enough to obey his commands. Uh, or, as I would add, or at least moral enough to uh, not do anything dangerous. Uh, because the shift from the chimpanzee to a human is not that big. If you're not a neuroscientist or a connoisseur of brains, uh, you're going to have a hard time figuring out without the labels uh, which is which here. But the difference is, of course, the poor chimpanzees are now totally at our mercy and living in small patches in Africa while we're totally transforming the world, and the chimps never knew what hit them. They don't even know ah, that it has hit them. They don't even suspect that it's the humans that are causing all this trouble, most likely. I haven't ta talked to them, but uh, I kind of assume so. Um, and that's a relatively small difference. Uh, if we actually get human-level AI, it's not just potentially much smarter, because uh, the elasticity of intelligence might actually be much larger than for biological intelligence, it's also going to be very different. Uh, this, uh, the problem is not so much the kind of robot rebellion, uh, it's rather that it's going to be very alien. This is another stolen slide, this was from James Martin's presentation here a while ago, and he got it, but, well, it's not going to have a resemblance to our intelligence, which is going to make it even harder, of course, to get it to understand human values and what we want it to do and what we want it not to do. So, well, jumping past the horrors of paper clips, um, which is another story, uh, we have been developing uh, together with people at the Machine Intelligence Research Institute uh, uh, with a little bit of theory about what could really go wrong if we get smart systems. So, if intelligence explosions are possible, and they are fairly fast, uh, then it seems that it's pretty likely that we could get intelligence that have value systems or motivations that are essentially random because the programmer didn't get around to it or ask them to make paper clips or worded the uh, demand in the wrong way or it was interpreted in the wrong way. And the problem is uh, most possible motivations are not compatible with humans around if you're a really smart system that's doing something very ambitious. After all, the most effective way of calculating lots of digits of pi is to convert every planet in the Milky Way into a computer, humans included. If you don't word your question uh, in the right way, that's going to be the obvious goal. It seems that utility maximizers are they're really dangerous because they have only one goal. They want to maximize some utility function, and if you set the wrong utility function, bad things happen. And the problem is that values we humans value are rather complex. We have a lot of different things that make us happy. We disagree what the ultimate go good is, but no philosopher thinks it's going to be as simple as calculating digits of pi or making paper clips. To an artificial system, it's not obvious at all, because its ultimate goal is going to be whatever you, ultimate goal you give it. So the problem here is building systems that behave themselves. And this is an inverse ethics problem. And at this point, it's actually that the philosophers come to the computer scientists and vice versa, because this is an awesomely tricky issue. Coming up with good safety measures, especially when you think whether this system might become smarter than you can think is also an interesting problem. I don't have the time to get into this. Uh, maybe we can do it in discussion. But, uh, uh, of course, the real seminal book about this is going to be Nick Bostrom's book about machine superintelligence and how to do that safely, coming out on Oxford University Press in June. So now I've done what my boss wants me to say. Um, and actually, uh, it's a really good book, and it's actually trying to tackle these questions in a useful and stringent manner. Because the real problem we have is, of course, that 
We actually are rather bad at reasoning this area. This is totally under-researched. People taking safety of artificial intelligence seriously, you would imagine that people did that from the first step. Back in the 50s, when they expected uh, human-level intelligence within 20 years. No, they didn't think about it. They pr had read the uh, Frankenstein. They had uh, read uh, Carol Capek's uh, RUR. And uh, of course, they knew all these science fiction stories about robot rebellions. But that mostly seemed to have led to a situation where they refused to deal with that kind of stuff, because that's just fiction. The first serious look at, well, maybe machines need to have some kind of proper ethics and value system actually shows up in the 90s. And it's still, to this day, people sometimes bring up uh, Asimov's rules uh, in robotics as if they were a good idea, rather than a literary idea, a literary fiction to get uh, a good story. But I think we can do quite a lot, because it's still early days. The machines are probably not smart uh, yet to take over the world in the classic sense. They have taken over the world together with us, in another sense. Um, in a sense, we're living inside a gigantic distributed technological uh, system. In a sense, we, we are the machine. So from this perspective, of course, we have a superintelligence, a global and, and, and a system which doesn't have much strategic intelligence. We might want to fix that part. But for individual questions, it's typically much more capable than any individual human is. It knows more, it can achieve more. And the goal, of course, is to make sure that system can become a friendly system, that we can monitor as we approach it, that we can also figure out better ways of having a proper symbiosis with it and perhaps our mind children. Thank you.